0: Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Um, you know, you sing the words about how great our God is, and we have absolutely nothing to compare him to, right? He is supreme. He is the top. He is the one who has created it all. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is all-powerful, and he is certainly almighty We're going to launch into a new uh, summer series. We're calling it Summer in the Psalms. And so our plan is to preach through a number of the psalms over the course of the next uh, couple of months. And uh, the first psalm that we want to examine in our new series is Psalm chapter 51. And so for us to better understand the contents of Psalm 51, we need to begin today by first examining 2 Samuel chapter 11. So let's start there. And then we'll work our way to Psalm 51. So turn with me back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. As you're turning there, the book of Psalms is a a collection of prayers and poems and hymns that are intended to focus our attention on God in, in praise and in adoration. And parts of the book of Psalms were actually used as a hymnal in the worship service of ancient Israel, And about a half of the 150 psalms were attributed to David, including the psalm that we'll examine today, Psalm 51, which is all about David's prayer of repentance after he committed sins of adultery and murder. And so what we're going to see today is it doesn't matter if you're a king. It doesn't matter if you're a servant. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or old or young. God holds all people accountable for their sin. Someone once said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is defined as any word, thought, or deed that is contrary to the laws, commands, or character of holy God. Sin is insidious, it's self-deceiving, it's self-gratifying. More often than not, it's self-compounding and self-destructing. Unrepentant sin usually breeds more sin, often in the form of cover-up or going further underground to buy a person more time to immerse themselves in the pleasures of their sin. Make no mistake, sin is an affront to a holy God. And if there's anything that we all have in common here today, it's that we are sinners, right? Sinfulness is the common denominator of all mankind. Every person that God has created has a sin problem. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And so sin is serious business because of the nature of holy God. And because he is holy, he must punish sin. One of the most precious verses in all the Bible is Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, which says that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so this is where Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, and the doctrine of substitution comes in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin for His righteousness. When Kathy and I first got married, we moved back to our home. Uh, my hometown of Springfield, Illinois, and I was a substitute teacher in the Springfield public school system. It's a reminder that I wasn't the teacher. Some of you have tortured substitute teachers in the past. Shame on you. But I wasn't the teacher. I was the teacher's substitute. And in the same way, Jesus wasn't a sinner but he was the sinner's substitute. He took upon himself the wrath of God in the stead of all who would believe in him. And so Jesus substituted himself for all who would believe in him. And this is referred to as penal substitution. Jesus paid the price. He paid the penalty for our sin. And so, through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, God removes the penalty of man's sin. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No eternal condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ and in Him alone for salvation, they'll never be condemned for their sin oh, they'll be held accountable for their sin in this life. They will answer for their sin before God the judge one day in heaven at the Bema seat, but they'll not be condemned eternally for their sin because they are now in Christ Jesus. Now, all of what I just shared is absolutely vital as we consider David's prayer of repentance today. So, We look back on the cross, right? As New Testament believers, we look back on the cross. We have the benefit of the entire Bible for us to be able to pour over and to not only see the Old Testament, but to see the New Testament. And so we look back on what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. Well, the people in the Old Testament didn't have that benefit. They didn't have the New Testament. It hadn't happened yet. And so while we look back on the cross, they looked forward to the cross. David, as we'll see today, was chosen by God. He was chosen by God to lead his chosen people, Israel, as king. David was an ardent follower of God. In fact, God even called him a man after his own heart. But as we're going to see here in a moment, even followers of God can grievously sin against him, and they can break fellowship with him. And so that is the context by which we now turn our attention. And so as we set the stage for what we want to consider today in Psalm 51, we need to understand what has brought David to the point of his prayer of repentance. And we find the story here in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Ramah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. So it was the common practice for kings like David to lead his mighty men into battle, especially during the nicer spring weather when armies went to war. But, but David decided that he would empower Joab, who was his commanding officer, and actually David's nephew, to serve in his place as leader on the battlefield, and he would stay back in Jerusalem with pretty much nothing to do. Everyone was out to war. It's a reminder that idle time can create problems for us. And that's what we find here in verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And so David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. When I was in Israel, I talked to a Jewish scholar about this very passage of Scripture. Always wondered more about the historical context of what we're reading here today. And he said that most Americans interpret these verses as Bathsheba was up on her rooftop naked taking a bath. But he said historical context is important here, and he said that's highly unlikely. And here's what he said He said, because all of the homes were built on the hillside and rooftops were flat, pretty much everyone could see one another's rooftops. And so because of that, most likely, he said, Bathsheba wasn't bathing naked because others would be able to see her, so she most likely was clothed to some extent. I thought that was interesting to know because he's right. I've always interpreted this passage as if someone's taking a bath, they don't have any clothes on. But he said it was very common in those days because of the situation and because their their bathing apparatus was on their rooftops that people would bathe with some clothes on because everyone can see. And I was there in Israel, and it's the first thing I thought of after he told me that. I looked at all the homes on the hillside, and they all have flat roofs. And so if you're a little higher than this guy, you can see down at all of the rooftops of all the houses below you. And so it makes all the sense in the world as to what he said. But, (laughs) as I said... David had idle time on his hands, and so he sees her across the way and he lusts after her because, scripture says, she was very beautiful in appearance. You see, sinful lust often conceives sinful action. When Kathy and I were in Ocean City, Maryland, for a couple of days celebrating our 35-year anniversary, there were literally, I'm not kidding, literally thousands and thousands of recently graduated high school students on the beaches and in the hotels and in the restaurants. They were absolutely everywhere. And most of them didn't have much clothing on. Guys and girls, Kathy and I talked about this often Perhaps we're getting old, but we were appalled. Kathy said to me, where are these girls' mothers? I don't want to get too descriptive here, but it was bad. First of all, I thought, what happened to modesty? What happened to modesty? If our experience was any indication, it seems that modesty is now a thing of the past. And immodesty can help to breed sinful lust in the heart of others. That's why we're supposed to be modest in our appearance, in our dress. And by the way, lust is sin even if it isn't acted upon. There's a movement in the evangelical church to say that same sex attraction is okay as long as they don't act on it. That's not scriptural same-sex attraction is sinful even if it's not acted upon because there is lust that is conceived in the heart of these people. And so we're not sure here as we read this if Bathsheba was intentionally tempting David or if David was just full of sinful lust and had to have her But it says here that he calls for her, he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. And now, the cover-up attempts begin. And so David comes up with this plan. He comes up with this plan to call Bathsheba's husband home from the battle so that he'll sleep with his wife and then others will think the baby is his. But David's plan doesn't work. Because Uriah the Hittite comes back and he sleeps on the doorstep of the king's house. And so David decides to go to plan B. And so you see the conniving. You see the cover up here. He invites Uriah to dine with him and he works hard to get him drunk so that he'll go and he'll sleep with his wife. But instead, Uriah goes back and he sleeps in the same exact place that he had the night before. And so now David is knee deep in this thing. I think panic has ensued. He doesn't know exactly what to do. And so he tells Joab, his commanding officer, to put Uriah the Hittite up on the front lines of the battle so that he'd be killed. And then David could take Bathsheba as his wife and then no one would ever know. No one would ever know that they were physically intimate before they were married, except God would know. David forgot about God. He forgot that God sees it all. God knows it all. It's a reminder that David was trying to fool other people, trying to make this seem like nothing happened, but God knows it all. Look at verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. And so it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. So moving now into chapter 12, David has now committed adultery, he has now committed murder, And God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David on his sins, and so he begins to tell David a story. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And they grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe, lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So look at David's response here in verses 5 and 6. Then David's anger burned greatly against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. So what's happened here? I mean, what, what has happened here? David has lost his spiritual compass because all he's trying to do here is to save his own reputation. And not surprisingly, almost always, folks that are in this situation become self righteous, like David. Rather than see their own sin, they often deflect, they appear to be angry with others' perceived sins. You see, unrepentant sin almost always leads to cover-up and deception. And so there are always consequences to sin. And we see those consequences here in verse 7 through verse 14. Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul." I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before you and give them to your companion and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. And so Nathan went to his house. You see... There are consequences to sin. We follow the story, right? Where did this all start with him? Where did it all start? Where does sin start? Sin always starts from the heart. Sin always starts from the inside. We always sin from the inside out. So David had idle time on his hands. David was wondering, you know, what can I do? Everyone's gone to war. And so he begins to look across the way and he sees on the rooftop this beautiful woman that is the wife of another man. And he sees her and he wants her. And so the lust is conceived into action. And so he sends his servants to go and to get her and he, they bring, him, bring her to him And he does what had already been conceived in his heart through lusting after this woman that's married to another man. And he commits sin. He lays with her. And one of the physical consequences of sin, because oftentimes there are physical consequences to sin, right? If we get drunk and we go drive a car and we get into a bad car wreck, We have sinned against God by driving drunk, but also someone else may have been hurt in the process, or we could have been hurt in the process. So there are physical consequences to sin, and we see that here because what ends up happening is that God disciplines David and Bathsheba, and he takes that child, and that child dies you might say, that sounds pretty harsh. Well, what's harsh is that David forgot who God is. That's harsh. David forgot of the majesty of God. He forgot how great his God is. He forgot that God is the one who placed him in his position with a position of trust and had given him his spirit to indwell him, to empower him, to lead in righteousness over the nation of Israel. That's harsh. Charles Spurgeon once said, when the repentance is as notorious as the sin, then it is genuine. And that's what we're going to see here as we turn to Psalm 51. So if you would, turn over to Psalm 51. You want to know what genuine repentance looks like? it looks exactly like what we're going to consider here in Psalm 51. So let's dive in and consider the contents of David's prayer of repentance. David's repentance is portrayed here in Psalm 51, and we'll see the content of it as we look at it in six different parts. First, David cries out for God's gracious compassion, and then he begs God to cleanse him from his sin. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here we find David acknowledging the character of God and the need for God to cleanse him from the awfulness of his sin. David was covered in the filth of his sin. And he doesn't have the ability to make himself clean again. And so he cries out to God. Of course, this is the New Testament parallel to this is what Phil had read for us earlier. 1 John chapter 1, and verse 9. Listen to the language. It says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So notice here in these two verses that David appeals to God's grace, his greatness, and his compassion to cleanse him from his sin and to forgive him of his wrongdoings. Second, notice that David acknowledges his guilt before a holy God. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is just a reminder here in verse four that when we sin, even if we think it's a little sin, it is evil in the sight of God. We sin against God. We can sin against other people too, but all of our sin is against God. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my mother's, and in, 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 in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. So notice here in verse 3, he acknowledges his sins, <laughs> plural. He acknowledges his sins. And then he acknowledges his personal sin here in verse 3. My sin is ever before me now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. When we recognize that we have sinned against God, now we're getting somewhere. He acknowledges in verse 4 that his sin is indeed against God, who is blameless in his judgment of man. You see, God never gets it wrong. He is clear as to what sin is. People ask all the time, well, how do you know that's sin? Because God says it is sin. Last week, we saw that God hates divorce. When we looked at the book of Malachi, chapter 2 and verse 16, God hates divorce. Do we need to wonder about what God thinks about divorce? He hates it. He despises it. He loathes it. But Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 provides a list of specific sins that God hates. It's not an exhaustive list but it's one that should make a shudder in our boots. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, and this is sometimes translated a proud look, but he's referring here to, to, to pride. Pride is at the root of most sins. Pride was at the root of David's cover-up of his sin. He goes on, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. We find a similar but more expansive list in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, referred to the deeds of the flesh. Paul says there, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are... Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because those who practice these things are obviously devoid of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that if we're jealous of something that we're going to go to hell. That's not the point. It's not the point that Paul is making. He's saying those who practice these things, this is the tenor of their life. This is who they are. It's not an outlier. It's not a thing that just happens periodically, but this is who they are. This is what they practice. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so he acknowledges here in verse 5 that he is a sinner he was conceived in sin. Romans 5:12 says, "Therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned." And so basically what Paul is sharing there in Romans chapter 5 is we are sin we sin because we're sinners. Everyone who has been beyond Adam is a sinner. The sin nature was passed on to all of Adam's posterity. All of us are sinners. That's how we started today, right? What is the one thing that we all have in common? We're sinners. We're sinners. We have sinned against holy God. So we sin because we're sinners. That is our nature. In verse 6, he acknowledges God's standards that God desires truth and he alone doles out wisdom. Third, notice that he cries out for cleansing and and restoration. Look at verse 7. "'Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities.'" You know, when we were kids and we got caught in a sin, our parents caught us in a sin. One time when I was a a little guy, my mom said, don't go outside. Well, what did I do? She was in the back room. My ball was out in the backyard. I saw it. I wanted it. So I went outside against my mother's demands and commands and I stepped on a rusty nail And I had to go to the hospital, and I had to get a tetanus shot. And for a little four-year-old boy, those aren't fun. But even when I was little, I started to learn of the consequences of sin. I didn't want to look at my mom after I stepped on the nail because I knew that she knew that I had sinned. David says, hide your face, Lord. From my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I couldn't wait uh, because a, 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 when I disobeyed my mom and I stepped on that nail, and you know what? She'd have never known that I sinned had I not stepped on the nail. I could have got the ball, I could have been back in the house, she'd have never known. But we talk about physical ramifications to sin. I stepped on the nail, bleeding everywhere, screaming out. I was caught. Create in me a clean heart, O God. A reminder that we sin from the inside out and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from Your presence and do not take Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain with me a willing spirit. David cries out for cleansing and restoration. When I was both in high school and in college, I played basketball. And for whatever reason, some of the guys that I played with never showered after games. And all the gals are thinking, ooh, that's gross. I mean, they were stinky, they were sweaty. And rather than jumping in the shower to get clean again, they just put on their clothes and they'd go get on the bus. And this is the idea that we have here in a spiritual sense. After David owned his sin, he couldn't wait to get in God's shower room to get clean again. He hated that he was carrying the stench of his sin. Do we want to know what repentance really looks like? It looks like this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. David is ashamed And he asked God to hide his face from him. He couldn't face God. He had sinned against God. But David knows that only God can forgive him. And only God can make his heart clean again. One of the many things that happen when we fall into sin is we lose our joy and gladness. We start to fake it. David had that. He had the joy of his salvation prior to his sin. He had experienced the joy of the Lord. And so he knew that was, what, that was what it was like to have that fellowship with God. And he desired to have the joy of his salvation restored. And so you see what sin does? Especially sin that's contrived and it's covered up and it grows. Falling into sin changes everything. It affects our relationship with the Lord and with other people. It can affect our reputation. It can taint the future. David knows all this. And so he begs with God not to cast his Holy Spirit from him. And so if you know about God's economy in the Old Testament, you know that people like David, who were kings, God would provide his spirit to kings and other leaders for empowerment to lead his chosen people, Israel. But it's completely different now in the New Testament. Again, completely different era of time in which God is at work. In the Old Testament, people like Samson had the Holy Spirit indwelling him, others that he would empower and anoint that were in high positions. But not every believer in the Old Testament had the Spirit of God within him or her. But in the New Testament we are indwelt by the Spirit. We are empowered to live the Christian life because we possess the Spirit of God. But what is one of the things that the Spirit does? He convicts of sin. So not every Old Testament believer had the privilege of having the Spirit indwelling them, but David did. David did, and he did not want to lose that. He begs with God, please don't take your spirit from me. He knows he's nothing without the spirit. He's nothing without the empowerment of God living in him. He's just a mortal man. Which brings us to verses 13 through 15. And and fourth here, we notice that David vows to praise God once again. David vows to praise God once again. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Our Lord, O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. David vows to praise God once again because God has created a clean heart within him. He has been forgiven of his sin. Yes, there were ramifications. Yes, there were these things that he had to deal with. But his relationship with God, the fellowship that he once had has been renewed. First in verse 13, he says, he vows to do this he vows to praise God once again through evangelism. Sometimes when we succumb to lust and sin is conceived in us, it is so profound that we never want to go down that path again. A huge part of repentance is seeing our sin the way that God sees our sin and wanting no part of it ever again. That's part of repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. We change our mind about our sin and we change our mind about how we're going to proceed from here. We're not going to do it again because that is what repentance is. And this is what repentance is in the heart and the life of David. And it's so instructive for us. David says, if God were to receive and grant him repentance and forgive him and cleanse him and restore him back to where he once was, he would dedicate his life to teach other sinners like himself to know the ways of God. Second, in verse 14, he vows to praise the Lord in music. You know, David was a singer. He was a musician. He would be in our praise team probably on this side or on this side. He was a singer. He was a musician. He was gifted by God. And he praised and worshiped and brought glory to God through his music. Music was one of the chief ways that he worshiped God. But you know, when he was in sin, unrepentant sin, his music was just noise to God. So he wants to regain that closeness with God so he can again praise him in song. And then third, we find here in verse 15 that he vows to praise the Lord through personal testimony. You know, there's something power, powerful about personal testimony. Like any kid that, that wants to go out in the yard and get their ball, when their mom tells them not to do so, I got a story. I got a story, kids. Ephesians chapter 6, children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that you shall live long upon the earth. We talked about this when we talked about the heart of the Christian father. We, we're to teach our kids instant obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And so that sounds good, right? Because we're old. We have kids. We have grandkids. And we can tell them, hey, obey your parents. Obey your grandparents. Honor them. But all of us could tell stories about times when we didn't do that. So what do we all have in common here today? We are all sinners. We've all dealt with sin. But there's a right way to deal with it before God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none of us that have escaped that. There's not one righteous. Not even one. Like, well, what about, Nope. No. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's something great about personal testimony. I remember one time we were leading our youth group on a bike hike, and we were 60, 70 miles from where we started. I mean, this was, a, this was the real deal. I hated that thing. I thought it sounded fun when it was proposed. You ever ride 40 miles a day on a bike, on a little banana seat? Not good. Sleep in the tent for a week. Not good. We we went to a park in somewhere in North Central Pennsylvania, uh, Illinois, and. um, I mean, it was a lot of us, like there were like 30 or 40 of us, and we had tents and everything. We were at the town square, they had a park, and they let us pitch our tents there, and that's where we stayed, and they had picnic tables and things, and we ate there and all that kind of thing. It was really cool. Well, there was a kid by the name of Steve who had ridden his bike up to the town square, and he saw all of us there, and so he was over sitting on his bike, and I saw him off in the distance and I thought, I'm going to go over and talk to this kid. And so I did. I went over and I said, Hey, what's your name? My name's Pastor Dave. And, and uh, he said, My name's Steve. He said, I just lived down the way, but I saw that there was a lot going on here. I wanted to come over and see for myself what was going on. I said, Hey, do you have anything going on right now? He goes, No. I said, Well, why don't you come over and have lunch with us? And so he said, Okay. So he came over and we had lunch. And, after lunch, uh, everybody off went, went off to play stuff in the area there, and I pulled Steve aside, and I said, we're a, we're a church group. We're a group that, uh, for fun, we are uh, riding our bikes all over the state of Illinois, and uh, I want to ask you a question. And so I began to ask him about his life, and I began to ask him about Uh, where he was at with Jesus Christ and we began to talk about sin and we began to talk about our need for a savior and right there in that park over the course of about 20 or 30 minutes of us talking about what sinners like us need a savior Steve fell on his knees and he prayed and he cried out to God and it was interesting to me because I don't think he ever prayed before. I don't think he ever prayed. He didn't know all the these and the thou's. He didn't know right the right cadence when he prayed. He just cried out to God, God, will you please save me? I know I'm a sinner. I know that you're the only one that can save me from my sin. Will you please save me? You see personal testimony in the lives of people there's something powerful about it there's something powerful about what god did in our life that we can share with others about what he can do in their life because that's how i started when i began to talk with steve i said how old are you steve 15 i said you know what when i was 15 i was a church kid i had grown up in the church but I wasn't a Christian. I'd never trusted in Christ as my Savior. I'd never repented of my sin. Never saw my sin the way that God did until I was 15, your age. You see the power of personal testimony. If we have gone down a certain path, we can share that. Even if we were in sin like David. Even when we had, if we have sinned grievously against God like David. And God has restored us back to the joy of our salvation. He's created in us a clean heart. He has forgiven us. We want to tell the world about that. We want to tell the world about that. And that's where David's heart is at. Then fifth, through all that he's gone through, David recognizes what is important to God. Look at verse 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Wow, this is helpful. Verse 16 says that God's not pleased with mere sacrifices. He's not pleased with burnt offerings. But in verse 17, he says that the sacrifices that God is pleased with are the sacrifices of a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You see, it's all a heart issue. We sin from the inside out. You see, God isn't impressed when, God, when, when people perform religious activities like sacrifices and burnt offerings. He's concerned with the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jesus said in Luke six forty five the good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. That's why Jesus said that folks will be held accountable for not only what they do, but what they say. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36. He says, but I tell you that for every careless word that people speak they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. And most folks would probably just stop there. Call it good, what an amazing story, and what amazing turn in the life of David. But there's something more here. There is something more here. There's, there's, a, there's another aspect to David's prayer of repentance, which brings us full circle. And at first I didn't see it. But after I read it, and I read it, and I read it again, it's profound. Simple, but profound. So sixth, as Israel's king, David turns his attention to the needs of Israel. All of the attention was on himself, right? His skin, his reputation, all of it, all of his thoughts, Or about himself. How is my sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah the Hittite going to affect this, that, and the other thing? All he cared about was himself. But look what happens. Verse 18 David turns his attention to the needs of Israel. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, after David's prayer of repentance, he's whole again before God. And here we find that his prayer shifts back to others as he prays that God would bless and protect Israel, and that he would delight again in righteous sacrifices. You see, David is eager to get back to working for the Lord. He's tired of all of the stuff that he got himself into. And he wants to work to impact the lives of other people. That's what he was. And then lust conceived in his heart. He sees that beautiful woman. He wants her. He's powerful enough to go get her. She comes to him. Sin conceives this is what true repentance looks like it 's total contrition it 's a brokenness over sin, no more cover up. We could care less about who knows our sin because we 're focused on making our rights our hearts right with God, and that is evidenced here in the life of David. Because he wrote about it, think about this, he wrote about it here in Psalm 51. Everyone knows about David's sin. Everyone knows. God used this story back in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and then his his repentance here in Psalm 51 so that everyone in every generation that followed David would know about it. This is what true contrition is. This is what true repentance is. You don't care who knows about your sin. All you care about is that you want to be right with God, that your heart is right with God. This is amazing. All that he'd gone through, and you know what? The Lord forgave him. What David has done for us is a great service to us because what do we have in common we're all sinners we're all sinners and but by the grace of God we would all be damned to a Christless eternity in hell but what David does for us is he, he shows us even the most egregious of sin can be repented of and forgiven for, for a holy God So what does David do for us here? He shows us what true God-honoring repentance is like. David was a man after God's own heart because he dealt with things in a way that pleased God. May we be referred to and called that that we are men and women after God's own heart. That should be our desire. That should be our hope. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word, the penetrating nature of it. Thank You that You convict us of our own sin. And Lord, I stand before this group of people this morning, and I'm not a perfect man. I sin told a story about it this morning about stepping on the nail, but I step on nails all the time. And so, Lord, I want to lead the way today in confession of my own sin before You and a desire for my heart to be continually clean before You. Forgive me of my sin. And Lord, I pray that this chapter that we have considered today would be a cleansing moment for all of us in our lives because what do we have in common we're all sinners but you've saved us by your grace and lord even if we have sinned against you stepped on nails our whole life you can cleanse us and forgive us we thank you for the great god that you are we thank you that you love us that you care for us That you stand with your arms open to us, even when we sin, that you can receive us back and restore us to fellowship. We thank you that you are perfect in that. We thank you for this strong testimony for the life of David today in our own hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.